Purchase new wiper blades from O'Reilly Auto Parts today and we'll install them for free. See better and drive safer with O'Reilly Auto Parts. Oh, 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 O'Reilly Auto Parts. Has the winter season taken a toll on your tile, upholstery, carpet? Call Cyclone Cleaners, 570-726-6200. For all your carpet, upholstery, and ceramic tile cleaning needs, it's Cyclone Cleaners. Also offering odor treatment and soil and stain guard. Choose the only cleaning company that supplies the water to clean your home and disposes of it when they are finished. Call Cyclone Cleaners to schedule your cleaning today, 570-726-6200. Whether you saw Barbie Oppenheimer or both this weekend, I've got spoiler thoughts on both movies right now. Hello everybody and welcome to my Barbenheimer spoiler review. Part of this review is going to be spoilers for Barbie. Part of this review is going to be spoilers for Oppenheimer. So you can choose either movie and come back later to see the other one. Or you can wait until you've seen both. Doesn't really matter to me. But before we get going with either movie, can I just say like it's been such an exciting weekend to be a movie fan. Because it looks like if the projections hold that we are going to be in one of the best performing movie weekends ever. And this was also something that was seemingly very organic. It really was people looking at these two movies coming out and also looking at the humor of these two movies coming out, Barbie on one hand, Oppenheimer on the other hand, and it just kind of became a cultural event. And I love that because people are gonna be talking about this weekend for a very long time. It looks like both of these movies are able to thrive and survive in the marketplace. And I think that that's because there's something about both movies that's just really exciting to people. And I hope, that this will convince the studios maybe to finally get back to the negotiating table with the actors and the writers because this is the kind of momentum and buzz that you want if you are a studio or if you are a theater owner. And of course, as this is happening, we're already talking about movies like Dune potentially and other ones later this year getting pushed off of their release dates because of the strike and you know let's not lose this momentum i mean i really do hope that that somebody with a clear head on the studio side decides to at least go back to the table and start negotiating again because this is what hollywood needed this is what the industry needed two popular movies two movies that people like you add in this whole cultural discussion and it just has really been a, a fun weekend so let's tackle the first of these two movies the barb in barbenheimer which of course would be barbie if you haven't seen my non-spoiler review you can click the little card up in the corner and this was the movie this weekend that i didn't love as much as everybody else and a lot of times people think that if a critic and it's not that i didn't like barbie i actually did like it i just didn't love it as much as everybody else but a lot of times if a movie succeeds beyond what a critic thinks of it, then people assume like, oh, so you were rooting against it and it proved you wrong. I am not rooting against Barbie at all. And I'm actually very happy that it's doing the way that it's doing because that means that the industry is healthy and that people are going back to the movies. And I also think that this was a really well-constructed movie with a lot of jokes that worked. I thought it looked fantastic. I thought the performances were great. There's a lot to love about Barbie, but there are a few elements that I didn't love as much as a lot of other people. In my non-spoiler review, I said that I personally believe that some of the messaging in this film 
was a little too on the nose for my taste. And now that this is a spoiler review, I can kind of go into more detail on that. Although, if you've seen the movie, you probably know what I'm talking about. It would be the speech that America Ferrera gives about two-thirds of the way through the movie. And I think that this is also an important place to bring up the idea of subjectivity and the different lens that you see a movie through, depending on who you are. When people look at reviews, they always say like, oh, well, this is an objective review. Reviewers are objective. And I think that that's why people sometimes seem to think that there's truth or that you're going to get to the final answer about a movie when it comes to a review. But I don't actually think that that's how it works. Now, I do think that a reviewer needs to have objectivity in the sense that you don't walk into a movie already sold on it or kind of like sold against it. Basically, anything that it does, you're not going to give it a positive review or you're going to give it a positive review no matter what. But when it comes to an actual film review, its very nature is subjective. Because when a critic reviews a movie, they are filtering that movie through so many different things. They're filtering it through their own life experience. They're filtering it through how many other movies they've seen. And if they've seen a particular version of this thing or that thing in another film. And what that means to them personally. Personal events that have happened in their lives. And no two critics are really alike in that way. Nobody's lived the exact same life. And that's why I think it is so important to make sure that, that there is access and a seat at the table for people from all walks of life and different life experiences because they can add to the critical mass and the critical voice. I predicted that that speech would be a lot of people's favorite scene in the movie and I've heard so many different times in the comments and just anecdotally that that was indeed a very powerful scene, especially for women in the audience. And I absolutely understand that. I understand that completely because I don't identify with that as strongly because that's not my lived experience. So it's perhaps not as cathartic for me to hear those things spoken aloud on screen as it is for somebody who's gone through the things that are being talked about in that speech. It's why there are certain movies that I love that some people go like, oh, why do you like that movie so much? It's because there's a character or a scene or the entire plot of the movie that is so tied strongly to a particular element of my life that I identify with that movie so strongly. And it really does feel like, in a way, it's speaking for me, like this art is reflecting my own life. I honestly didn't expect Barbie to be as overt with its themes and messaging as it was, and I wondered in my non-spoiler review if that was gonna be lost on younger audiences. It doesn't appear like it has been, and I think that that's part of the, the process of this movie being seen by so many audiences, because movies and TV shows, it's why I kind of shy away from this idea of calling everything content. Content to me sounds like it's just something to be consumed, whereas movies, TV shows, etc., I think that they are art in their way, in their medium, and art is meant to be consumed, yes, but then it's also meant to be digested and processed and talked about. Critics are part of the digestive system when it comes to movies and TV shows and spark discussion and that's probably why so many people think that we're assholes. So while I don't have a problem with the message of the movie, there was an ideological thing kind of structurally and story-wise and thematically that I've been struggling with a little bit because the setup of the movie is that you have Barbie land and the Barbies have all of the roles, Supreme Court justice, doctors, lawyers, and then the Kens are kind of superfluous. They are and Ken. They just are kind of hanging around. And that is what really sparks this conflict between Margot Robbie's Barbie and Ryan Gosling's Ken. And when you get to the end of the movie, there's that discussion. And I thought that it was a good discussion about Ken finding his role in the world and he's got to be separate from Barbie. And Barbie even apologizes 
for kind of making him feel superfluous. And I think that that's all good. I think that's a really good trajectory for those characters to take. My issue is that when all of that is resolved and the Barbies are back to the roles of power that they were in and they've enshrined their constitution, etc., there's a brief discussion and it's really kind of treated as a joke where one of the Kins says like, hey, can I be a Supreme Court justice? And they're like, no, you can't do that. Maybe one of the lower courts. And then there's a, a voiceover line, which again is sort of treated as a joke where it says that the Kens will have as much power in Barbie land as women have in the real world. And I get the humor behind both of those things, but when you look at the theme of the movie, to me, it kind of contradicts what I think the lesson of the film was, which is that the movie really is about the inherent injustice behind the patriarchy and the idea that all of the power is concentrated here and you're subjugating this group of people here. And yet at the end of the movie, we're kind of back to the status quo in the sense that the Kens are still sidelined and it's expressly said that they will not be given roles of power in Barbie land. And to me, that just makes Barbie land a reflection of the real world which is a system that we were told is a bad system. The Kens were objectively wrong for taking over Barbie land in the way that they did, but I don't think that that necessarily justifies where they are at the end of the movie. And, you know, I'm not outraged by this, like so many people are, who probably would have been outraged by this movie regardless, let's be honest. But I do think just on a creative level, and when you look at it structurally and from a writing level, it does create a bit of a dissonance thematically with the rest when facing a family law matter, it can feel like an overwhelming and never-ending court process. It's vital to know that things will look better on the other side if you hire legal counsel with the skill and compassion to help. It's Stangy Law Firm. We represent clients in difficult family law matters every day. Visit FamilyLawRepresentation.com to schedule your consultation. That's FamilyLawRepresentation.com. Stangy Law Firm, here to help you rebuild your life. Stangy Law Firm has an office in Wichita. Kirk Stangy. 120 South Central Avenue, Suite 450 Clayton, Missouri. ...of the film. Now, the things that I loved in the movie and that I wish that they'd done even more of were the things that were centered specifically on Margot Robbie's stereotypical Barbie. For example, there's the scene, and it's a very small scene, where she sits on the bench and she sees the older woman sitting next to her and she looks at her and she says, you're beautiful. I love the setup there, which is the idea that when Barbie sees somebody in the real world, who does not fit the ideal of beauty as exemplified by Barbie, because Barbie has only grown up around other Barbies, she sees the difference in that older woman as beauty. And I really wish that you could have explored more of that and the idea of what's beautiful and, and how much of that is shaped by your environments and your surroundings. And again, it could have drawn a better line between Barbie world and the real world and explored the differences there a little bit more instead of kind of just going to the real world and then back to the Barbie world for the third act. And I think you also could have tied it into the specific legacy of Barbie because there's also a contradiction there. Barbie is in many ways a feminist icon because this was a toy that was telling little girls that they could be doctors, they could be astronauts, they could be lawyers and whatever. Years before that was a message that you could find in a lot of mainstream media. And yet at the same time, other Barbies are sort of the image of vapid capitalism, beauty obsessed, clothes obsessed with the Malibu dream house, and maybe an example that you don't want younger girls necessarily to follow. And it's the same doll. And so when they all exist together, there almost could have been a conflict that was stoked between them by people in the real world. But I think what that also does is ironically sidelines Ken 
And you could tell that, and they had a great thing with Ryan Gosling here playing Ken. You could tell, I think, that they really wanted to play on the Ken angle, which does then lean more into doing the patriarchy thing rather than this Barbie, more Barbie-centric story. She's kind of splitting the spotlight with Ken a little bit more. But I think it's really encouraging that they definitely did not tap the well dry as far as analyzing who Barbie is and what the legacy of Barbie is. So while I do have my qualms with the movie, I also really liked a lot of it. The Helen Mirren voiceover, the line about uh, Margot Robbie not being the right casting if you're going to do a story about Barbie not feeling adequate. That was an A-plus joke. That's one of the hardest times I've laughed in a movie in a while. And then, of course, I mentioned Ryan Gosling was great. Margot Robbie also really, really good. The, the journey that that character takes, and she has to play so many different kinds of emotions from the beginning to the middle to the end of the movie. So I'm glad that she has found a vehicle like Barbie where she is front and center, it's done well at the box office, and it only underscores her value as an actor because she is a really, really good actor. And I'm glad now that that has been married with the financial success of a blockbuster movie like this. So let's move now to Christopher Nolan's Oppenheimer. I was curious about how audiences were going to respond really to both of these movies. The cinema score came out for both of them, which is a poll taken of opening night crowds, which are usually the crowds that have the highest expectations for movies, and both got an A, which kind of surprised me. I thought that they might get an A- minus or maybe a B plus in the case of Oppenheimer because they're not exactly what you may think they are going in, but I think that that just speaks to the strength of each movie's message and how well made they are. I have seen, though, Again, in the comments, a lot more disappointment when it comes to Oppenheimer than when it comes to Barbie. And a lot of people saying that they didn't get what was promised and that they were disappointed in the film. And I'm not completely surprised. It is out there in many ways. And, and I thought that it would be polarizing for some people. But the reasoning behind some of these responses has been a little curious to me in the sense that, you know, I feel like I could push back given the intention of the movie thematically. And again, maybe the issue being that people were hewing a little too close to their expectations and not letting the movie in for what it was. I've seen a lot of people who thought that the Trinity test, the first test of the atomic bomb was a disappointing sequence that they thought that given the buildup and the marketing that this was going to be the crux moment of the movie maybe even the climax of the movie and that they felt underwhelmed by it that the explosion wasn't big enough first of all i think that the the work with the audio when the bomb went off and all of the audio just drops out and you have this bright light, you do see these explosive elements. I think maybe part of it is that when you cut wide, the bomb is not huge because you're often at the POV of people that were very far removed from the explosion. But I think people wanted this sort of Michael Bay-esque thing. And I just don't necessarily think that that's what Christopher Nolan is always going to deliver because I think he was much more interested in the representational elements of that moment and, and seeing the people's reaction and being on faces and seeing Oppenheimer then in delivering this just huge, massive explosion on screen. I feel like that's a shot that we've seen in so many movies and you can see the, uh, the actual footage of the Trinity test. If you want to see just like the big mushroom cloud shot, to me it was much more abstract than that and I didn't necessarily mind that approach. Similarly, I've seen some people say that they were disappointed that the movie didn't show the use of the atomic bomb in Japan, in Hiroshima, and Nagasaki. And I also think that would have been odd because the movie itself is almost constantly either with Oppenheimer or with characters that are talking about Oppenheimer. And there's really not much of the movie zooming away from him to show this sort of third-person view of like what's actually going on 
in the United States. We don't go into the war room in the White House. We don't, you know, see troops moving. It's really confined to Los Alamos, what's happening at this lab, what's happening with Oppenheimer. And I think that part of the impact of that is that even he was not told when the bomb was going to drop, even though he'd asked to be told. And so to hear it secondhand is very much experiential and putting you in his shoes to know what it was like, not just for him, but for everybody at Los Alamos to find out on the radio that this thing that they'd spent years developing had been used. And a lot of people have also made the argument that, well, you can't really make a movie about the atomic bomb if you don't show the results of the atomic bomb. And again, I would say that I think the movie does in its own way. And I loved what Christopher Nolan did with it, actually, because yes, you do stick with Oppenheimer, but that scene where he's giving the speech in the gym kind of structure, the shaky, I loved how the environment behind Oppenheimer would shake. It was a really good um, portrayal of, I, I sometimes suffer from social anxiety. And I can tell you that that's that's sort of how it feels. Like the the, the noise just becomes this kind of cacophony and you, you, you feel like the world is closing in on you. And that's just regular social anxiety. That's not even dealing with what he's dealing with, which is the fact that this thing that he spearheaded has now in practice killed tens of thousands of people. He sees the skin peeling off of the one person and he looks down and he's stepped into, in his mind's eye, the husk of a burnt out body. To me, that is translating the horror of what was done, but keeping in that sort of subjective point of view that the rest of the movie has been in. So I, I again, this is just a matter of opinion, but I like how Christopher Nolan did that without making it a, a sort of objective, like, okay, now I'm shooting it, I'm documenting it like a newsreel. It's staying in that very first person feel. And I think that's one of the reasons that I liked the movie so much was I felt like I was kind of along on the ride with Oppenheimer, I actually think that the whole conflict was straws, which I didn't actually know that Oppenheimer had had his security clearance revoked. And I didn't know that Straws was somebody who was very antagonistic towards Oppenheimer. So this was a plot twist for me. That conflict between the two of them where the whole movie he's trying to figure out, what did he say to Einstein to turn him against me? You know, how did he sabotage me? And he sort of pulls this thread all the way to the end and really to his own self-destruction. And I think that that is a great metaphor for really what's going on through this entire film, which is that World War II was this conflict between nations. And it drove the United States and the scientists here and then later scientists around the world to invent this thing that now everybody in the world knows could be an instrument on any given day of the destruction of humankind. And so it's this idea of, well, we were so wrapped up in this conflict between us that we didn't even really pay attention to what we were doing until it was too late. And now we may have destroyed ourselves. And that's a pattern that is sort of seen in a microcosm there with the whole Strauss, Oppenheimer, Einstein thing, where it turns out that Einstein didn't care about Strauss at all. He was sort of consumed with this idea of, did we just take actions that ended the world? And yet this guy, Strauss, is so short-sighted by his own conflict with Oppenheimer that he can't see the bigger point. And so I liked that dynamic. And again, I think it's a way of telling the big story of the movie in a small way that's also... When facing a family law matter, it can feel like an overwhelming and never-ending court process. It's vital to know that things will look better on the other side if you hire legal counsel with the skill and compassion to help. It's Stangy Law Firm. We represent clients in difficult family law matters every day. Visit FamilyLawRepresentation.com to schedule your consultation. That's FamilyLawRepresentation.com. Stangy Law Firm, here to help you rebuild your life. Stangy Law Firm has an office in Wichita. 
Kirk Stangy, 120 South Central Avenue, Suite 450 Clayton, Missouri. So consequential with the plot. The sex scenes have been something that I've seen discussed with a lot of different people and the idea of were they gratuitous or were they jarring and people didn't like the idea that the whole I am become death quote was wrapped up in that first scene with Florence Pugh. And and again, for me, my take on it is that this was this relationship with Gene Tatlock was something that came back to haunt Oppenheimer in many different ways. It was the way that the movie most clearly showed us his womanizing nature and cheating on his wife and cheating with other people. But also his connection with her was part of what undermined him to allow for the revocation of his security clearance. And so I feel like the movie almost has to show us that as a carnal sin. I mean, it's almost like a, a biblical thing. Now, the idea of bringing in the I am become death line in the sex scene, which to me, I think is sort of linking the two great sins of Oppenheimer's life. I will agree that it's a little bit on the nose, but Nolan kind of has a tendency to do that in some of his scripts. I, I don't know if I would have included that particular detail in that sex scene, but as far as the the presence of those scenes, um, the second one even, I hear people say like, well, I don't understand, was it really necessary to bring in and do the one that's basically in the interrogation room? And that to me was even more impactful because it focuses so heavily on Emily Blunt's character, Kitty, Oppenheimer's wife. Her husband's infidelity is now laid bare in the public record, and it almost is also like, you know, it's torturing her. I mean, this is what she imagines, what she thinks of her husband cheating, and this has all been dredged up again. Uh, is it shocking? Yes, but I didn't think it was gratuitous. I think it was supposed to be shocking, and I think that it achieved what it was set out to do. The only thing that really took me out of the movie was Gary Oldman playing Harry Truman because it did just seem like another Gary Oldman prosthetics role. I actually liked the content of that scene. The idea that Oppenheimer realizes that he was basically used and that the government doesn't care what he has to say and certainly does not respect his point of view when it comes to the use of atomic weapons. But Gary Oldman in that part, I mean, well, first of all, when we talk about the Potsdam conference, that was Truman, Churchill, and Stalin. Well, Gary Oldman's already played two of them, so he may as well play Stalin and sort of, you know, fill out that scorecard. But that was the only one that kind of felt like stunt casting. Everybody else in the movie, even though they were bigger names, to me, they sort of melded into their role. There were a few other cast members. I mean, there's so many, but a few that I didn't mention in my non-spoiler review because I didn't know if people knew that they were in the movie or not. Josh Hartnett. I've been on the cinematic journey with this guy since Halloween H2O. So crazy to see him pop up in this movie. And I thought he was really good. Casey Affleck. I like that they never really establish what his character was capable of, but he could definitely disappear people whenever he wanted to. Alden Ehrenreich, his gradual realization of who Strauss was really kind of mirrored our own realization as an audience. You know, I kind of wish the Han Solo thing had never happened because he is such a good actor. And I feel like it was sort of derailed because of the whole Solo Star Wars story thing. He's in a movie that comes out later this year called Fair Play. And he's great in that too. It's coming out on Netflix, I think, uh, later on in the fall. Give that one a shot when it comes out. Rami Malek, the whole movie, I was basically thinking like, did this guy sign on to be an extra just because he loves Christopher Nolan? But then he sweeps in as the whistleblower on Strauss in the hearing. This movie was a lot like JFK, if you've seen the Oliver Stone film JFK, which is that the ego of like, well, I'm an actor on a certain level, so I need to have a role this big was pretty much gone. And it really was people just saying like, yeah, I want to work with Christopher Nolan and I'll come in and play any part that you have for me. Dane DeHaan, I haven't seen him in a movie since Valerian, almost like a Law & Order episode with this character where he's like the fake suspect that's sort of the red herring, but I think that he played his part 
really well. And then Jason Clark, what an SOB this guy was. The way he badges witnesses, the cockiness, that scene where he's grilling Oppenheimer, so intense with the white glow coming in. And then his showdown with Emily Blunt, where he's trying to break her apart on the witness stand, and she's just giving it back to him just as much as she's getting it from him. Again, there's going to be a lot of cast members that aren't going to be able to hit the radar for awards because there are so many and because there are lots of other movies that come out this year. But I think that that scene with Emily Blunt and Jason Clark is really going to stay on people's radars. And I hope that she does get nominated along with Robert Downey Jr. and Killian Murphy because in a movie full of great performances, I think those were the three that were the biggest standouts. So in general, Oppenheimer, as I said in my other review, is my favorite movie of the year so far. I do look forward to watching it again, knowing what I'm in store for, because I can listen a little more closely because it is a little tough. Maybe I can find an open caption screening because it is a little tough to hear. Nolan does have to be taken to task for that a little bit. He really does not mix the dialogue very high in his movies, and it can be tough, especially in a movie that, that goes as fast as this one does, and some people have accents, and you're what do they say? And there's a lot of unfamiliar words. So, you know, I, I will hit the movie a little bit there and on a couple of script things, but, but they are really minor qualms for me. I really, 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 really liked this movie. And, you know, I'm happy also that there are so many people that love Barbie so much. It may be a movie that I liked but didn't love, but still, I am a believer and a lover of the power of movies and the power of movies to inspire us and make us laugh and move us. This weekend, really, I think proves just how true that is because it's not just that people are seeing the movie. If both of these movies came out on streaming this weekend, it wouldn't even be close to the same kind of thing. I think people rediscovered this weekend the magic of going out with friends and everybody that wears pink going to see Barbie and then jumping over into a different theater to see Oppenheimer and how it has brought people together and friend groups together and generations together, that's what movies can do. And now hopefully the studios understand even more that they need to pay talent and that they also need to care about the movies that you put out there. Because if you do it right, if you get the right people behind the camera, and if you put the right kind of buzz and marketing behind a movie, and if you really believe in it and believe in your talent, then it's going to reward you both financially and also by putting something out into the culture that's actually worthwhile and not just another thing that was made in any given year. So Barbie Oppenheimer, those are my thoughts on those two movies. What did you think? Let me know down in the comments below. Thank you so much for watching. Be sure to stay tuned on Tuesday. I will be going over all of the box office numbers for both movies, Mission Impossible, Dead Reckoning, which seems to have just gotten completely lost in the shuffle. We're going to talk about the strategy or lack thereof behind that movie's release and so much more. I appreciate you spending part of your day here with me. Until next time, stay safe and I'll see you then. Bye. If you own a vehicle with less than 200,000 miles and have an auto warranty about to expire or no warranty coverage at all, listen up. CarShield has a low-cost, month-to-month vehicle protection plan that covers more parts than ever. Visit carshield.com audio to find out how you could pay almost nothing for covered auto repairs. Drivers who activate this vehicle protection today will also receive free roadside assistance, free towing, and car rental options at no additional cost. Get your free quote today at carshield.com audio. That's carshield.com audio. 
When facing a family law matter, it can feel like an overwhelming and never-ending court process. It's vital to know that things will look better on the other side if you hire legal counsel with the skill and compassion to help. At Stangy Law Firm, we represent clients in difficult family law matters every day. Visit FamilyLawRepresentation.com to schedule your consultation. That's FamilyLawRepresentation.com. Stangy Law Firm, here to help you rebuild your life. Stangy Law Firm has an office in Wichita. Kirk Stangy, 120 South Central Avenue, Suite 450 Clayton, Missouri.